Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. New details of a fatal house fire in Hamilton have been released. Hamilton could soon have a new health care hub. Not everyone with long COVID will recover within a year. A difficult decision ahead for the National Football League. We'll get a glimpse of the future of small business in Ontario. And an 18-year-old Brantford musician is breaking out. The GMH podcast starts now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. Trying to figure out exactly what ignited is the next stage of our investigation. So that that does involve forensic and involves fire modeling. Um, Not necessarily an accelerant. Um, Obviously, careless smoking could cause that. Electrical could cause that. Extension cords, Christmas trees. Welcome back to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. That's the voice of Ontario Fire Marshal John Pegg, who earlier this week uh, confirmed some new details in last week's fatal townhouse fire on the Hamilton Mountain. We learned that there were no smoke alarms in this home, no working smoke alarms in this home. We've also heard from the city's public school board confirming that Lambeau and Khaleesi McIsaac lost their lives. Two children who were students at Adelaide Hoodless Elementary School uh, also identifying their mother, Cassie Chrysler, as one of the four victims. Here to talk about it is David Cunliffe. He's the chief of the Hamilton Fire Department and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dave, good morning. Good morning, Rick. Extremely sad story, and what what's troubling, though, is that this was, was 100% preventable. Yeah, extremely troubling, uh, Rick, for everybody that's been involved in this, and certainly for the community. You know, th- this is a, this is a, an instance that sort of uh, plays itself uh, multiple times throughout the year in Hamilton and across the province, where we respond to structure fires and we don't have working smoke alarms. In fact, it's uh, it's pretty devastating uh, percentage. We're looking at over 51% of the structure fires that we have in residential properties don't have working smoke alarms, and it's just uh, it's disheartening uh, to me. Uh, we've been we've been really trying hard to get the message out, and it, it appears that people just aren't listening. Um, and it's devastational. It really is, um, and tragic. So. Um, I appreciate the opportunity today to talk about it because, first and foremost, it is the law in the province of Ontario to have working smoke alarms on all levels of your residential dwelling and especially outside of uh, sleeping uh, units. Have we determined a cause yet? No, the fire marshal's office is uh, continuing to work on that, as the fire marshal said the other day at the press conference. Uh, there's uh, forensic uh, evidence that uh, needs to uh, be worked through, um, so they're still working working through on that. What we do know is that the fire started in a sofa on the ground floor of this townhouse, so you know, careless smoking is obviously uh, a factor that's being considered. Yeah, there's multiple factors, uh, Rick, as, as they go through this. Uh, it's, it's basically uh, by elimination. They'll go through and look at the probable causes or probable sources, and as they go through that, uh, they'll take a look at the evidence, do their testing, and then uh, one by one eliminate, uh, eliminate things. When it comes to not only the fire alarm, but the fire drill at home, this is you know, a good opportunity to remind our listeners that you know, we as, as parents, as citizens in this community, should be having uh, a home fire plan and, and practicing that plan. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so really, the, you've, you've hit on the two things. First and foremost, make sure you have working smoke alarms. And 
What's really important is they need to be tested. Uh, you need to make sure that the, the batteries are changed on a regular basis. Certainly we encourage every six months when you change your clock, you change your battery. But the other thing too is there's uh, many, many smoke alarms in homes that are in areas that when you're cooking or you're having a shower, the steam will set them off. So when they get activated, um, the battery is getting use. And so that battery uh, will... Uh, will not hold that charge as long as one that's not uh, being activated. So we want to be mindful of that. Uh, if things are being activated for um, other than real fires, uh, that we want people to be changing those batteries more often. The other thing is you got to make sure that uh, hasn't it passed through its uh, life expectancy because smoke alarms have a 10-year life expectancy. And so it's really important that people watch that too and make those changes. The other piece is, as you said, um, the uh, have, a, have an escape plan. In this case, uh, we learned from the fire marshal uh, the other day that uh, the escape route, the normal escape route down the stairway from the second floor to uh, out, the, out to the front door was blocked by fire. And so we need people to be thinking about if you are uh, anywhere in your home, think about having two ways out because that one, the, the way that you normal, the normal path of travel may be blocked by fire or, or something. And so uh, we want you to be thinking, okay, so if I'm on the second floor, how do I get out if I can't get out down the stairs? And is it out a window onto, a, onto another roof, onto a garage roof? Uh, do I know where my where the windows are so that I can get out? So make sure it's a window that you can get out. Do you have an escape ladder that uh, can be put out from that window to get down to the ground? Um, these are things that we want people to, to recognize. The same thing if you're in the basement. How do I get out of my basement? Um, if I can't get up the stairs, where's the windows? Uh, how do I get to them and how do I get out? All great tips from Dave Cunliffe, Hamilton Fire Chief, as we recap a fatal fire on the Hamilton Mountain, which claimed four lives. The other part of this is the firefighters fighting this blaze, finding these victims. How are they doing? Well, um, it, it's traumatic for not only the fire, our firefighters that were at the scene that night, but all first responders who were there, because all first responders came together to uh, deal with this tragic event. Specifically with our firefighters, uh, we brought in uh, and activated our critical incident uh, uh, stress team, our peer support group uh, that night. Uh, uh, they were uh, working with the firefighters uh, who were on scene. Uh, subsequent to that, there's been follow-ups with folks, as well as uh, we did a formal debrief on Monday with all the crews that were involved with a uh, mental health professional to help uh, them talk through it and just uh, make sure that they're doing okay. And, and it doesn't stop there. We are constantly, um, you know, making checking in, making sure people are okay, because uh, in this type of situation, um, you know, it's, it's disturbing. And quite frankly, as I've said in the past, uh, for first responders and specifically firefighters, uh, we go to these incidents to uh, try and make them better. And certainly in a situation like this, our, our goal is to save lives. And uh, when it doesn't happen, uh, we tend to reflect on what we could have done or if there's things we, we should have done to, do, to try and do it. And in this case, our firefighters did everything uh, humanly possible to try and make this outcome uh, positive. And unfortunately, it turned out the way it did. Well, Chief Cunliffe, your team does an amazing job day in and day out fighting fires, keeping people safe. And I greatly appreciate your time on the show today. Thanks very much, Rick. I appreciate the opportunity. And as Hamilton Fire Chief Dave Cunliffe should also mention that not only is the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board bringing in a critical incident response team at Adelaide Hoodless Elementary School, in which two of the children attended, um, this is to provide support, obviously, as classes resume on Monday. There's also a GoFundMe page that has been set, uh, set up to help pay for the end-of-life care for these victims. You can find the link on our website at 900 CH 
www.thehl.com. And at last check, early this morning, uh, the goal was $25,000. They had raised already more than $8,000. So go to 900chml.com, click on the link, give what you can. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. There is potentially some incredible news happening for Hamiltonians in the northern end of the city, and it all revolves around the Eva Rothwell Center. It could soon become a home for primary care services in this community. Dr. Brian McKenna is a deputy lead physician with Hamilton Family Health Team and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Dr. McKenna, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. Great, thanks. How are you? I'm fantastic. What is uh, the vision here behind this uh, healthcare hub? So the vision is to bring um, sort of a a one-stop shop of team-based primary care services to the Eva Rothwell Center. And what I mean by team-based primary care services is not just a family doctor or a nurse practitioner, but but to complement sort of that person, uh, you know, mental health counselors, uh, sort of care navigators and, and what we call link workers, uh, a registered dietitian, clinical pharmacist, all of the kinds of people that really complement sort of a full scope community embedded primary health care program. Is this sort of thing being done anywhere else in this community? So family health teams across Ontario, including the Hamilton Family Health Team, which is Ontario's biggest family health team, do support this kind of team-based care, but it tends to be sort of the professionals traveling out to the family doctor's office rather than than sort of um, hubs that are embedded within such extraordinary social and community infrastructure like the at the Eva Rothwell Center. So that's the big and that's sort of the uniqueness of this particular opportunity, bringing these services to a place where so much good is already being done in terms of taking care of 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 the at risk individual. The hope is that we can come help to fill in a little gap that they're they're not addressing at the moment uh, to really change health and social trajectories in the long term. And, and is that gap that you speak about forcing individuals in this part of the community going to the hospital to seek care because they might not have a family physician and and this would certainly close that gap it's it, it is and and you know we an, an extraordinary inquiry was done here in Hamilton called the Code Red Study, and the first sort of bit of it was published in 2010. And over 10 years, we tracked major sort of uh, health outcomes across Hamilton. And what we learn is that wealthier people are healthier. And we've known that for a long time, but this particular um, inquiry sort of made that known um, with regards to sort of specific circumstances in specific Hamilton districts. And so what we know about people who live in the L8L postal code is that even if they do have a family doctor, it might be too far away. They might not have sort of the transportation at the time of the appointment needed and that they do present to the emergency room more frequently. They get admitted at, at a higher rate than people who live in other areas. And, and we know from other evidence around primary care that if we get in there and address some of these root causes, Um, sort of before people are sick, we can change some of those patterns. Dr. Brian McKenna is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Dr. McKenna is the deputy lead physician with the Hamilton Family Health Team trying to put together a uh, health care hub at the Eva Rothwell Center in North Hamilton that will greatly impact that uh, portion of the community. I I mentioned funding and money off the top. I would imagine that is a hurdle. Is Is it a great hurdle to overcome? 
it's it, you know there are extraordinary philanthropists in this community and this region and um you know uh, there there is a short list of people who are interested in contributing to this project we don't have the three hundred thousand dollars that we need yet um but we are hoping to kind of in the next few months contributions are welcome from anyone uh existing existing sort of primary care agencies are are coming together um really helpfully to try and develop the long-term operating model the money we're looking for in the short term is to do the brick and mortar structural conversion to turn a really old kitchen into um into a healthcare space why eva rothwell center because of how extraordinary a job uh, Eva Rothwell has done at building the social and community infrastructure that I referred to earlier. Eva Rothwell started in 2004 in the Robert Land School Building, uh, which was no longer a school. And, you know, what started as two rooms worth of programming now envelops the entire building uh, and is a comprehensive program for, you know, really young children all the way through to adults who are obtaining academic credit at the Mohawk College City Campus. It is the right place for primary health care to show up and pair up in a way that, again, really could um, change those longer term health and social trajectories. So it's not just about providing care to um, to people who need it at the time they need it. It's about pairing up with all of that social and community care to make people's lives better in, in a whole bunch of different ways. Dr. McKenna, we only have about a minute. Uh, there's a lot of moving parts here with funding, getting these healthcare professionals in place, doing the renovations. What's the timeline? So it's going to be an exciting few months. It, you know, I'm optimistic that we'll have the money we need in the next sort of two months, fingers crossed, um, with, with the hope that then it, it would be sort of four to six months to do this renovation, get the conversion done. Uh, and during that time, you know, we would be building the care model. So, so my hope is that we're seeing our first patient in the fall of 2023. That would be very exciting. Dr. McKenna, thanks for your time today. Good luck with us. Thanks so much for having me. Happy New Year. Same to you. That's Dr. Brian McKenna, Deputy Lead Physician at the Hamilton Family Health Team, as they uh, put all the pieces together to get this primary care service, this health care hub for underprivileged members of the Hamilton community in, in the North End at the Eva Rothwell Center. We wish them the best of luck in doing so. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Study from McMaster University says most patients with long COVID recover within a year, but there's about a quarter of them that are still suffering symptoms. It's very interesting. Uh, the study's been published in the European Respiratory Journal, and we have the pleasure of speaking with the senior author of the study. Dr. Manali Mukherjee is an assistant professor in the Division of Respirology in the Department of Medicine at McMaster University. Dr. Mukherjee, good morning. How are you? Good morning. Actually, good evening from where I am. <laughs> well, Hi, thanks for joining us wherever you are. Really appreciate your time today. The study suggests that 75% of people who have long COVID um, recover within 12 months. That leaves 25%, I guess, not fully recovered. Is that something that you were expecting to see? Um, let's, let's just, because I'm getting this opportunity, I want to make it very clear. The study shows that 75% of people who contracted COVID, irrespective of whether they had symptoms or not, actually their symptoms attenuate by 12 months and about 25% of those 
patients still have symptoms and still have some sort of inflammatory markers that we, we are able to detect in the circulation in the in the blood right so which basically kind of ties in with the percentage of patients or the percentage of individuals who um, may have long COVID. Not all people who get COVID has long COVID or gets long COVID, but there is a subset of patients who ends up with long COVID-like symptoms. They may have it at six months, they may attenuate by six, uh, by 12 months. They may keep on having it at 12 months and they may get attenuated by 18 months. What the study suggests is that there are patients who get better after contracting COVID, but there is a subset, a significant subset of patients who have long COVID symptoms and they are associated with circulatory uh, inflammatory markers. So there is inflammation still in these patients and that's what requires medical attention. So that's what the study's main uh, main uh, interpretation is. So, so just... That's a great clarification. So for those people who still have those symptoms or that, that inflammation after 12 months, which is a long time, should they be worried? Yeah. Um, the thing is that the more we worry, it actually adds to other uh, issues like anxiety et al. Um, yes, now long COVID is being recognized. There's a lot of work being done. There are a lot of uh, researchers working on it, clinicians working on it, uh, long COVID clinics. This is something that is uh, very, um, it, it's something that is really being looked at, not just from the medical community point of view, but from the government side as well. So, um, which means that they will be attended to. Um, the, the truth is, after 12 months, if you're still unwell, um, go get medical attention. And work of this nature, these kind of research work, what it um, allows the medical community to know is that, yes, this is something that might be, that 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 can be something that can lead to something uh, or, or, or may need follow-up. So um, I think instead of building up on anxiety or, or getting anxious about uh, your uh, your symptoms, it might be a good uh, good reason to just go and uh, get a health checkup or be seen by your uh, physician, and uh, they may forward it to us uh, to somebody who deals with uh, seeing long COVID patients, etc. So you know, there's nothing. I don't think one should get too anxious about it. That's all I'm trying to say because I am myself. I'm a person with lived experience. I'm a long hauler myself. My symptoms took almost 18 months uh, to recover. And the truth is, it's not the same presentation in everybody. It's highly heterogeneous. It, it varies from person to person. Sometimes symptoms can completely go away only to relapse back. Dr. So it's something that is being investigated. Dr. Manali Mukherjee is a professor at McMaster University, senior author of this study that looks at long COVID. And you just mentioned that you had long COVID. Back in September, I think the last time we had you on, you said mm -hmm. that you were about 75% of your pre-infection energy level. Has your energy level improved since then? Is it is it back to normal? You know what? I am currently on vacation, so that would be a very bad apples to oranges case. <laughs> But um, yeah, I have not been uh, triggered by fatigue uh, these days. So um, I'm counting my blessings right now. That's but I news. do know there are many people out there who are not. I'm one of the luckier ones. So, of course, we are there to learn more, research more and try and understand how we can help um, the long haulers better. I know there's a lot more research that needs to be done, but is there a potential long term impact uh, for those who have long COVID? That's a fantastic question. So 
to answer that, what you need is a longitudinal cohort, and that's exactly what the uh, what the research community, the scientific community, is uh, heading towards, um, and that's what we're trying to see. We're trying to uh, study patients and trying to look at the long term symptoms. What we can, what, what I can actually tell you in in response to your um, answer is. Some people may have a trajectory towards getting a diagnosis. So, um, and that being said, do I know some patients who get get a diagnosis? Yes, they do because they are part of my current study. Um, and then again, there is a majority of uh, patients who also get better. So it just needs to be followed up. And we are not in a position to give a definite answer to this because the landscape is so much changing. It's dynamic, and we're we are learning every day as we study this disease, and we follow the trajectory of the long haulers. You're also leading what is called the autoimmunity and post-acute COVID syndrome study. Are, are there some correlations that you can uh, take from this study and, and apply it to that one? Actually, yes. So the study that uh, got published that looks at everybody who had a PCR confirmation of COVID and we followed them for 12 to 24 months. The current study that you just named, uh, the ongoing study, uh, that we only take those who have a confirmed long COVID diagnosis. So according to the WHO um, definition. So we are now following only those who have a long COVID diagnosis. So these are individuals pre-COVID who were in healthy, uh, who were healthy in good health. And now uh, they have symptoms and, and they are not uh, functioning and they, they kind of comply to what is currently known as long COVID. And we are following them up. And yes, uh, some of them actually are on medical uh, interventions. We are hoping to uh, finish the study by middle of this year. Um, and, and by then, Hopefully, I can give you a definite answer to your question, and uh, we can help people with with either medical interventions or we'll know we'll know more how to manage this. Well, we will absolutely follow up with you later on this year on the findings of that study, and we really appreciate you taking the time out of your vacation to join us on the show today, Dr. Mukherjee. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Rick, for giving me this opportunity, especially to make sure that the heading of the um, of the article was uh, properly interpreted. Thank you so much, Rick, for this opportunity. Appreciate it. Dr. Manali Mukherjee, Assistant Professor in the Division of Respirology in the Department of Medicine at McMaster University, senior author of this study, and a very interesting one at that. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Well, this is the last thing you want to see as they brought the stretcher out. They have that backboard out. Damar Hamlin is the one who was in on that stop on T. Higgins. And then he got up and just went right back down to the ground. It's been a couple of days now, three in fact, since Monday Night Football and Buffalo Bills safety DeMar Hamlin's incident. If you missed it, somehow, some way, DeMar made a tackle during Monday's game against the Cincinnati Bengals, stood up after the tackle and then collapsed and has been in the hospital ever since in critical condition. What is the latest on this player and uh, the latest on the schedule, uh, on his condition, and what this means going forward? Let's ask Cindy Boren, sports reporter with The Washington Post, who joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Cindy, welcome back to the show. How are you today? 
Oh, it's great to be with you. I'm fine, thanks. Just uh, like everyone, kind of waiting to see how DeMar Hamlin is recovering, if looking for good news. The Buffalo Bills tweeted yesterday, quote, DeMar remains in the ICU in critical condition with signs of improvement, noted yesterday and overnight. He's expected to remain under intensive care as his health care team continues to monitor and treat him. This is still a very scary situation. Uh, it absolutely is. Uh, he remains in the intensive care unit. Um, I think everyone was told initially that it would be, you know, at least 48, 72, maybe even longer hours before there would be any kind of uh, realization about how well he might recover uh, by the doctors just because they were um, presumably, we don't know this for a fact, but it would it, it would appear that they have cooled him down. Um, and, you know, to prevent uh, organ damage, brain damage, it helps the brain to heal after being deprived of oxygen, as, as his was, for a few minutes. So, you know, we're just not going to know. Um, maybe today there will be there will be a development because we're coming up on you know, roughly 72 hours, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I just think it's going to be a long slog here. There, uh, there is a, a, a bit of controversy going on uh, between the National Football League and what ESPN is reporting, because the mm-hmm. NFL has said that, uh, listen, we did not uh, instruct the teams to begin, you know, a 15-minute a, a warm-up is what it's called, to get ready to resume the game. ESPN is saying, no, 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 we, we, we have it on good authority that that was going to be the case. Um, that would have been a very difficult game to continue on with. Oh, absolutely. Uh, you could just see on the faces of the players um, and, and the coaches, it, it, it just would not have worked. Uh, I think the one, you know, the, the cameras did catch Joe Burrow just kind of throwing the football, but that didn't really mean anything. I mean, what else was he going to do? He was just kind of standing around. Uh, someone somewhere dropped the ball. I, I hate to say that. But clearly, I, I'm going I'm to roll with ESPN here. Someone told them that the game was going to be resuming. I, think, uh, I don't think Joe Buck and, and Trey Aikman would have gone out on that limb, um, given what they were all watching. Um, were, were that not the case? Um, and now, you know, what happens to the rest of the schedule? Do, do the teams play Sunday? I don't know if you... Uh, paid too much attention to the players around the league who were available for media. You know, their typical week um, begins on Wednesday with media availability. And they were talking, and you could still see they were just shell-shocked. I can't imagine really how they play a game on Sunday, any of them. Um, the Bills haven't been available yet to, to speak to the media. They may not be all week for obvious reasons, and who can blame them? Um, and I don't know about Sean McDermott, the coach, if he'll be available. But, you know, I just I, – I, I don't know how they play. I think um, um, I, Aaron Rodgers, for instance, was saying that he, he was shook watching it. So maybe, maybe the uh, NFL <laughs> just rolls on. But I kind of want – and they haven't decided. You know, they, they, they appear to say that the games are on. For Saturday and Sunday, but are they? Yeah, and that, that could change. And you know, added to it, it, this is a tricky part of the schedule because this is the last week of yeah. the regular season, and there's not a lot of wiggle room. I guess you know that that one week before the Super Bowl, which is kind of 
you know, left for media days and all that kind of stuff could be absorbed by mo- moving all the playoff dates back a week. But there's really right. two games to consider. It's, you know, this weekend's Patriots-Bills games or any other game and and the Bills-Bengals game, too. Yeah, and, and to put aside the, the human stuff that we've been talking about, um, it, you know, the the number one seeding in the AFC is at stake. Is it fair that it would end up going to the Chiefs, um, it, given that the Bills beat them, um, given that, that uh, the bank um, – and what about the Bengals? You know, where does that – they beat the Chiefs and the Bills. Mm-hmm. How, does this, how does this work? Do you maybe say if the AFC championship game comes down to uh, Bills-Chiefs, it goes to a neutral site? That might seem the fair way to handle it. I mean, it's, there's just so much in play here, and I just don't know – how the NFL resolves it in a fair way. Now there's some, you know, there are some contingencies that, that the NFL was forced to consider during COVID, um, you know, but if games were canceled and all that stuff, so maybe they can kind of go back to that game plan that they had. And of course, in um, after the terrorist attacks of nine 11, the season was postponed a week and the off week disappeared Frankly, that that off week before the Super Bowl is just such a waste. Um, it's there. Uh, they could they could clearly take that. Uh, and and sorry, Pro Bowl. You know, <laughs> no one's that. watching it anyways. One one thing to consider too, and we got to run here, is that the National Football League has been battered for years, and rightfully so, over not acting quickly enough or not doing mm-hmm. enough on a player safety standpoint. So if they rush this or make the wrong decision in terms of the next Bills game or the schedule, that's going to be another you know chink in the armor in terms of uh, ignoring or not putting player safety on the on the top shelf of, of I mean, this is, the, this is their employees. And they have to do a better job yeah. of identifying that. That's important. And they also took a massive PR hit from the way it was handled Monday night just in terms of the media and ESPN. I mean, it was handled wonderfully on the field. The plan they have in place for players who are injured clearly works really, really well uh, in giving um, DeMar uh, Hamlin the best chance at survival in in a healthy, normal way. But um, they're sensitive to the PR hit they took. They know that. And I remember Pete Rozelle said that the biggest mistake he made was not uh, was in playing games after the assassination of President Kennedy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they are sensitive. Um, I will as cold-hearted and as you know, and as clear-headed as they have to be about planning this. Um, they are sensitive. Yeah, there are some uh, tricky stick handling days ahead for the NFL. That's for sure. Cindy, always appreciate your time. Thanks for joining us today. Great to be with you. Thanks. Cindy Boren is a sports reporter with the Washington Post. Yeah, there's really two major games that the NFL has to consider on what to do. Num- number one, when are they going to play this postponed game between the Bills and Bengals? And number two, week 18 this weekend, the Bills are hosting the Patriots. And both those games mean a lot in the standings. But boy, oh boy, if you're a player on the Bills... You probably don't want to play either of these games. Your your head your headspace is somewhere else. Should also note the GoFundMe page that Demar Hamlin had set up to raise money for underprivileged kids. His goal was twenty five hundred bucks. 
it has surpassed $7 million. Unbelievably. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Earlier this week, I spotted a tweet that read, quote, this week I celebrate my five or fifth anniversary at the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. It was sent out by Rocco Rossi, who's the president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber, and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Mr. Rossi, good morning. How are you? Happy New Year, Rick. Five years ago, could you have imagined how much different the small business landscape is now? Uh, Not at all, but like the song uh, said at the beginning of the spot, it's been years in the making and I do it all over again. (laughs) Things have certainly changed over the last five years, my goodness. Well, it's been uh, huge, obviously, uh, a uh, once-in-a-lifetime pandemic on a global basis, the shocks to supply chain, the invasion uh, of a country in in Europe that we thought we'd never uh, see again and the ripples that that has uh, has caused. It is... um, the one thing that uh, continues to give me hope is the incredible entrepreneurial spirit, innovation that seems to rise up um, to every challenge. It's not without uh, without loss, but uh, lots of opportunities always going into the future. When you hear from members across the province, what are they saying is the biggest challenge? Because there's a number of of hurdles here, whether it's supply chain or inflation or rising interest rates, which really is putting, uh, you know, a damper on spending. What's that number one item that people are identifying? Well, those things all obviously are, are top of mind right now. The thing that has that was there before the pandemic, before the illegal invasion um, that continues and has been exacerbated is really um, skills and labor. Uh, and, And that is a structural issue that we've been seeing coming for years because we have an aging population. You take immigration out of the picture uh, and and this is a rapidly aging um, economy and population, and that means people retiring, people uh, moving to uh, different work arrangements, and that is putting enormous strains on the economy on a systemic basis. There's also, and we've got a couple minutes to chew on this one, a, a looming recession. Are Ontario businesses ready for this? Look, uh, one of the things about talking about uh, recession is that sometimes it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy in the sense that if people worry about it, then they start to cut back on capital investment, uh, cut back on expansion, uh, and then that in turn uh, causes what you wanted to avoid. Clearly, uh, the rapid rise in interest rates uh, that the central banks around the world, not just here, have put into place to um, to slow inflation uh, has always had the impact of then leading to um, leading to a recession. What is in a sense unique this time around is that uh, we have almost full infla- uh, full employment uh, and uh, and there are still across Canada almost a million unfilled positions. So this is going to be 
uh, a recession unlike any that we've seen before in the sense of how do you how do you get to basically an almost full employment recession it's 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 something that people are having difficulty wrapping their heads around i'm intrigued to see how it all plays out uh, rocco uh, we know that the last five years have been a challenge for many businesses but ontario small and big business owners have proven that they're very resilient and and flexible and adaptable and they've done a great job in not only staying afloat but thriving at this difficult time as well thanks for your leadership and for your time uh, today on uh, on the show Appreciate you shining a light on this, and uh, here's to uh, an even better 2023. You got it. Thanks, Rocco. Rocco Rossi is the president and CEO of the Ontario Chamber of Commerce. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. That is a new single called Games, and it's from an 18-year-old who just happens to be from Brantford, yeah, just down the highway. Jalen Bradley is her name, and she joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Jalen, good morning. How are you? Hi, good morning. I'm fantastic. How are you? I'm amazing. What is it like listening to your song being played on the radio? Jeez, it's, it's crazy. You know, I think about uh, back when I was so young and so little, just like the dreams I have and the passion for music that I have, and just being able to pursue this has really been a dream come true. Um, it wasn't too long ago you were starring for KTEL's Mini Pop Kids. Is that where you got your start? Yes, that is 100% where I got my start. I kind of found my passion through that experience. I mean, it was it was incredible. I was touring across Canada. I was obviously on the KTEL Mini Pop Kids 15 CD. Everything was everything was really great. So you got a new single out. It's called Games. Tell us about it. What's it about? Yeah, so Games is my newest single, and I started off with a really personal story and it kind of created the song but it's basically basically about navigating your way through a first love relationship that maybe wasn't right for you uh in like concluding the song it's kind of just more about self-worth and being strong enough to do what's best for you whether that be take a leap of faith or leave the relationship that wasn't right for you i just want listeners to kind of take away from the song that it's okay to do what's best for you relationships gone wrong it touches everyone Yes, it does. <laughs> Unfortunately. Relatable. Yes. Um, you also had a single, I think, two summers ago, 2020, or almost three summers ago now, called Last Summer. What was it yeah. like getting that that song and, and your new single, Games, out into the market? Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's always, like, a little bit nerve-wracking just because as much as you want to, you know, please the people and everything, you're really doing this for yourself, or I'm really doing this for myself. So it's exciting and it's been really fun, and it's really interesting to hear people's feedback, mostly positive, of course. I love all my supporters, and it means the world to me. Jalen Bradley is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Jalen is a musician from Brantford, an 18-year-old who's just released her new single called Games. You can download it wherever you get your favorite music. Head over to the music store. I'm sure it's there as well. You're also working on your first album. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I am in the process of creating my first album. I've got about four songs done, so we still have a couple more to go. But I mean, you can expect something completely different from me in the future. I'm kind of leaning more towards pop and R&B, so a little bit of a different take, but I'm really excited. Hopefully it'll done be done within the next couple months. What are the influences that you're looking at, both musical and just in everyday life, that you can relate in your music? Yeah, for sure. So for games, it was definitely like um, a mixture of just like 
pop and ballad, maybe a little bit of Adele, maybe a little bit of James Arthur, and leaning into my new album and new music, I'm kind of leaning more towards pop R&B artists such as Giveon and SZA and Summer Walker, that kind of vibe. Have you allowed yourself to think about the what ifs and, and the positive what ifs? Like, what if I make it huge? Yeah, for sure. Of course. I mean, always, I always think about the big picture. I'm a big dreamer. So is my mother. And I think I get it from her, which is awesome. But yeah, I definitely think about the big picture and about where I could go with this. And I'm always aiming high, for sure. Always, always following my dreams. And if I do make it big, then I guess I'll be doing exactly what I love. So fingers <laughs> crossed. Yeah, that's an amazing uh, an amazing goal. The new yeah. single is out. It's called Games. Album to come. Jalen, really thanks for your time. Best of luck going forward. Yeah, thank you so much. It was great. Jalen Bradley is a musician from Brantford, out with a new single, working on the album. She's grinding and already finding some success. It's great to see. Great to see that just from a local perspective as well. You know, the Hamilton, Brantford, Niagara, GTA community in terms of music is is a hotbed. We got a lot of up and coming superstars coming out of the woodwork. So, congrats to Jalen and good luck in the future. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live. We did mornings from 5.30 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your favorite podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Thanks again for listening, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode, and make sure you rate and review.